Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The seaside town of Ipswich, Massachusetts, is a quaint place about an hour north of Boston. Today, tourists flock to the area to enjoy the famous clams in Crane Beach. In the late 16 and early 1700s, though, life there was very different. Early settlers made a living farming, fishing, and operating mills. Larger ships that needed deeper ports passed the town in favor of Boston, Salem, and Plymouth keeping Ipswich's trade and population small. At first, settlers struggled to survive. The weather was less than hospitable, and winters proved to be brutal. But the ocean brought fish, the marsh was perfect for growing hay, and the rivers supplied water for drinking and running the mills. And the effort and hard work were worth it. Starting over in a new world was better than the tyranny they had suffered in England, In the Americas, settlers could almost smell freedom in the salt air. Life wouldn't be easy, but then one worth living never was, and some people took that saying to heart long before it became mainstream. Jenny Slew was born in Ipswich in 1719 as the daughter of a free white woman and an enslaved black man. According to state law, such children inherited their white mother's status and were allowed to live as free people. However, children born to enslaved women, fathered by white men, did not inherit the same privilege. Though the state didn't legally recognize her parents' union, Jenny insisted her parents were married, and they lived together. When she herself became an adult, she married twice, both times to enslaved men. But Jenny remained free, until 1762, when she was kidnapped and forced into slavery. The kidnapper was a prominent citizen within the community. John Whipple Jr.'s ancestors had been one of the town's founding families. He had been a respected military officer. He was wealthy, too. And with that wealth came status, and a large 14-room estate he had inherited from his father. He already owned several enslaved people, including a Native American boy he'd kidnapped during the genocide committed in King Philip's War. He needed more servants for his large home, and happened upon Jenny walking along the road one day. Being a woman, and especially one of color, her legal status was inconsequential. Not willing to give up her freedom, 43-year-old Jenny sought out an attorney willing to hear her case. Now, in most of the colonies, enslaved people had no right to counsel. Massachusetts was different, though, and permitted them to bring civil suits to court. Despite this, it still took her three years to find an attorney willing to hear her out. Attorney Benjamin Kent filed her case with the court on January 29th of 1762. Whipple was furious. He believed she had no right to sue him for any reason. For starters, she was married, and being a man's property, he argued that she had no identity of her own. 
therefore, without her husband's permission, she had no right to sue. And the courts agreed. They reasoned that because she wasn't a spinstress, she had no rights in court. In short, enslaved people could bring a case to court, but married women of any color or status could not. The judge didn't even address the kidnapping. Kent was a shrewd lawyer, though, and so he called into question the validity of Jenny's marriages. You see, he knew that the law provided an unfortunate loophole. Since enslaved people were not legally allowed to marry, both of her marriages were void on account of her partner's statuses, no matter what her own. It took another four years before the Essex Superior Court of Judicature in Salem agreed to hear her case. Now Jenny, the spinstress, had been granted a trial by jury. Just as Jenny couldn't provide a birth certificate, Whipple couldn't provide a bill of sale. So Kent reminded the court of the state's anti-miscegenation statute that made his client a free woman by her white mother. In closing, he told the court, I shall not enter into the right of some men to slave others. The judge himself owned several enslaved people. However, the jury ruled in Jenny's favor, ordering her immediate release and awarding her damages. Whipple didn't face any charges of kidnapping. Jenny became the first person in the colony's history to be granted her freedom in a court. On March 5th of 1765, she walked out of the courtroom a free woman. Her liberation came at a time when citizens in Massachusetts began to rise up against England for their own independence. A close and prominent friend of Kent's who had attended the trial stated that liberty had been restored to Jenny Slew. Kent went on to represent other such cases over the next several years. He encouraged his high-profile friend to include a declaration in the Massachusetts state constitution that all men are born free and equal. That friend was John Adams. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Records don't show exactly where in Virginia he was born. The births and deaths of enslaved African or Native Americans were rarely registered as of 1840. What the records do show is that, as an adult, Madison Washington appeared to have been an enslaved cook who kept his eyes on freedom for himself and his wife, Susan. When the opportunity presented itself one night, they took the chance to slip away. Unfortunately, while Washington escaped, his wife didn't quite make it off the property. He stuck to the plan, though, determined that he'd eventually figure out how to free her. He trusted the abolitionists who operated safe houses to help him make a safe journey north. They supplied him with forged papers, and the occasional stranger provided food and a place to sleep at night. Mostly, though, he relied on luck. And, perhaps miraculously, he made it to Canada. Britain had abolished slavery years before, and since Canada was under British rule, Washington became a free man once he stepped foot across the border. Before he left Virginia, he and his wife had made a pact. If only one of them made it to Canada, they'd work until they had enough money to buy the other's freedom. And so, Washington found steady work with a farmer called Mr. Dixon. He earned a fair wage and saved what he could, but the price set for his wife proved too high for him to afford. At his current pace, he figured it would take nearly five years to save up the money. By then, anything could happen. She might be sold off or fall ill or be killed before he could buy her. For Washington, freedom meant nothing without his Susan. 
Dixon tried to talk him out of leaving. He'd been lucky to escape, luckier still to have made it to Canada. He warned Washington of the severe, if not fatal, consequences if he were caught. Washington thanked him for the job, but left in 1841 and headed back south. When he reached Rochester, New York, he met with one Lindley Murray Moore, the president of the Rochester Anti-Slavery Society. The Moore family was also part of the Underground Railroad, a network of paths and safe houses for enslaved African Americans trying to escape. While staying with the Moors, Washington tried to hire a slave stealer to rescue his wife, but none took the job. Without another option, he'd have to risk returning to Virginia to free her himself. With donations from other abolitionists, Washington collected enough money to help make his trip easier. From New York, he made it to Virginia, but that's where his luck ran out. He made it back to the plantation and was captured and re-enslaved. He expected the usual violent physical punishment, uh, such as a whipping, but his owner decided on a different path. He chose to sell Washington. If he whipped him, he'd leave scars, a telltale sign to future owners of a rebellious nature. He sold Washington to a slave trader. Thomas McCargo frequently purchased large numbers of enslaved people and sold them to other parts of the country or as part of the Atlantic slave trade. Human trafficking was a lucrative business, and McCargo had plans to sell Washington and 26 others he'd purchased at the auction blocks in New Orleans. In late October of 1841, Washington was loaded onto the ship Creole. The ship, along with the 109 enslaved people aboard, belonged to the Johnston Epperson Company of Richmond, Virginia. Along with the human cargo, the ship carried tobacco, plus eight additional enslaved persons belonging to the traders and a paid crew, bringing the total to 135 people on board. The captain, Robert Enser, felt confident enough that his human cargo was docile that he brought along his wife, four-year-old daughter, and 15-year-old niece. It was a bold move. Conditions for even the paid sailors aboard such cargo ships weren't exactly the best, and the conditions the human cargo were subjected to could understandably make them anything but docile. Washington was assigned to the job of head cook for the enslaved persons, allowing him to stay on deck most of the day. While he supervised his crew, he also had the opportunity to talk to the sailors. He got to know their routines and who was who in the hierarchy. Slave traders considered their cargo no better than livestock. They'd been bought as cheaply as possible, kept in crowded conditions, and fed just enough to ensure top dollar at the auction block. To Washington's shock, he learned that his wife had been sold too and was in the cargo hold, though he wasn't permitted to see her. Slave ships like the Creole were either built specifically or converted for transporting human cargo, and often referred to as guinea men. Such a ship's worth was determined by how many trafficked people it could carry. The hulls were divided into holds, one for men and another for women. Transatlantic ships usually shackled people to the hull's planks. Though the Creole didn't chain its human cargo, the cell doors of the overcrowded hold remained locked. The conditions were unhygienic. Disease was common, leading to a roughly 15% mortality rate. The faster a ship made it to its destination, the better. At night, some of the ship's officers selected women to take to their quarters, returning them to the holding area the next morning. Not all enslaved people were kept in the holds, though. 
Some, like Washington, were allowed above deck. Being the cook, he and a handful of others were permitted to move about the ship to perform their duties. Usually, they were watched closely, but as he began to notice, usually didn't mean always. Before long, Washington had formed a dangerous idea. He began to feel out fellow captives who also had deck privileges. Some of them he had met before being sold, others were new to him. And soon enough, 19 others agreed to his plan. A plan for mutiny. It almost didn't happen. When William Merritt, one of the slave traders, went down into the hold where the women were kept on November 7th of 1841, he was surprised to find Washington there. He demanded the cook take himself above deck immediately. Washington initially did as asked, but he didn't disclose the weapon he'd confiscated earlier. After the two men reached the deck, Washington shoved Merritt to the ground. The two struggled, and Washington managed to take the slave trader's pistol from him. At some point, another enslaved man, Elijah Morris, joined the fray. And when another member of the crew saw what was going on and raised the alarm, Morris shot him. When that shot rang out, Washington called out to the others that their mutiny had begun. The rest of the mutineers throughout the ship extinguished all of the lamps, throwing the decks below into darkness. They surrounded the staterooms and overpowered the crewmen, taking their weapons. A couple of mutineers went after the slave traders first, killing one by throwing him overboard. One of the mutineers was seriously injured in the fight and later died. In the scuffle, the captain was wounded. His wife, daughter, and niece remained unharmed, but kept under guard. A couple of the mutineers were also injured, but would survive. Washington called out to not kill anyone else. And, with the situation under control, the men listened. During the confusion, the first mate, Gifford, and the wounded captain had vanished. Eventually, one of the mutineers found the two hiding on the mainmast's platform. One of the enslaved men shouted for them to come down, or he'd shoot them both. Gifford descended, where one of the ringleaders placed a musket to his chest. By 1 a.m., Washington had control of the Creole. They'd gotten this far, but had no idea what to do next. One of the mutineers suggested the Bahamas, since they were under British rule and had outlawed slavery. By morning, they forced first mate Gifford to steer toward Nassau. Early on November 9th of 1841, the Creole sailed into Nassau Harbor. When quarantine officers boarded, Gifford reported the mutiny. Since the captain was injured and Gifford had taken over as acting commander, he requested the ship be watched while the crew went ashore for medical treatment. He also asked for guards to prevent their human cargo from leaving the ship. If an enslaved person stepped on the shore, they'd be free. The quarantine officers obliged as a temporary measure. Gifford would need to speak with the proper authorities before the ship would be allowed passage on to New Orleans. The first mate met with Counsel John Bacon. The mutiny and the human cargo were unusual circumstances, and the matter was taken to Colonel Sir Francis Cockburn, the governor. Instead of giving an answer straight away, he required paperwork and reports in order to proceed with an investigation. Keeping the ship just offshore meant wasted time. The longer the ordeal took, the more of the Creole's cargo would die, and to Gifford, 
that amounted to a loss of money. He tried a plea bargain. He asked that the authorities detain the mutineers and allow him to continue onward to New Orleans. Cockburn refused. Nassau had no jurisdiction regarding the mutiny. Then he ordered everyone on the ship detained until the Secretary of State in London weighed in. Meanwhile, they would proceed with their own investigation. The hired crew of the Creole found themselves unwelcome among the black population in Nassau. Not surprising, really. Most had been enslaved before Britain outlawed it. Even white members of the community would mutter under their breath, there goes another one of the damned pirates and slavers. Depositions were set to start the following Monday, but due to Captain Ensor's injuries, were called off on Thursday. The Creole's crew testified that the mutineers had acted savagely, trying to kill any white person they could. Meanwhile, through all this, the ship remained guarded, more to prevent the crew from sailing off in the middle of the night than to prevent anyone from stepping ashore. No matter how Gifford and the others argued that the people aboard were as much cargo as the tobacco, the Nassau government remained unmoved. Considering the potential loss of the valuable cargo, Gifford convinced his counsel, Bacon, to help him release the ship. The plan entailed taking weapons from two other American ships in the port and sneaking them onto the Creole. Gifford had already gained approval from one of the other ship's captains. Once the weapons were aboard, the Creole's crew would overpower the Bahamian and British guards, force them off the ship, and the Creole would be on her way. Of course, the British soldiers would send a ship after them, but Gifford knew the Creole was fast. Slave ships had to quickly transport their human cargo, not only to prevent disease and death, but to avoid pirates. Pirates sometimes freed enslaved people or took them on as crew. And Gifford knew that pirates, who had once been enslaved, were bad news for traders. But he thought that all the Creole had to do was sail to the small island of Indian Key off the coast of Florida, where he hoped to find an American warship that would protect them. A suspicious Bahamian guard watched the activity aboard the neighboring American ship. Men loaded weapons onto a small boat and concealed them in a flag. When they headed toward the Creole, he alerted British officers. Twenty-four British soldiers pointed their muskets at the approaching boat and ordered them to turn back. A major incident had been avoided. Had the crew of the Creole used force against the Bahamian and British guards, it could have caused a diplomatic conflict between the United States and Britain. Word spread throughout the island about the fate of the people held aboard the Creole. Bahamians freed during the 1833 British Abolition Act took to small boats and surrounded the ship in protest. They loudly demanded the men, women, and children held on board be released. As soon as the crew of the Creole had maneuvered out of one dangerous situation, they found themselves dropped right into another. The attempted escape and the growing crowd demanding the captive's freedom forced the governor to make a quick decision. He didn't want to risk dissent among his people on top of the situation at hand with the Americans. He canceled the remaining depositions and ordered everyone removed from the Creole and brought ashore. For Washington, the moment was bittersweet. Technically, he and his cohorts were free. His wife, if she were still alive in the cargo hold, would live as a free woman. For himself and the other uprisers, however, there was the matter of mutiny and murder. Guards took Washington and 18 of his co-conspirators into custody. 
and British soldiers begin escorting those left in the holds to shore, granting them their freedom. Five turned down the offer, choosing to stay aboard the ship, perhaps fearing a trick or preferring the devil they knew. With that, the ship's captain and his crew were finally free to leave Nassau. The Creole arrived in New Orleans on December 2nd. When financially interested parties found out there were only five trafficked people on board, they were outraged and demanded the others be returned to the States. The tension between the United States and Britain rose. The U.S. Secretary of State at the time, Daniel Webster, declared the Nassau Governor's Act a violation of the Law of Nations, and the U.S. Minister to Great Britain contended that, per the Constitution, enslaved people were the property of the United States, and thus that Nassau authorities had seized American property. British officials disagreed. Since they no longer recognized slavery, they argued that the U.S. had no power to hold the formerly enslaved people from the Creole without criminal charges. Despite American officials' demand to return their cargo and contended property, Nassau refused. Britain and America had no extradition treaties between them. Southerners called for Britain to compensate them for their losses. When even that request was denied, relations between America and Britain were further strained. It's estimated that the average cost for an enslaved person was between $800 and $1,500. With the number of people aboard, that was about $150,000 total, a considerable amount of money for the time. Two people who had been held aboard the Creole died shortly after their release. Without extradition laws, the rest of the men, women, and children from the ship were welcome to stay in Nassau or go wherever they wished. Most chose to stay, though about 50 set off for Jamaica. Either way, they were free and no longer in reach of the slave traders. Washington and the other mutineers remained in jail until the trial. The United States claimed that because the crime had been committed on an American ship, the trial should take place in the States. London saw it differently and stated that the trial would be held in Nassau. In response, American President John Tyler released the Bahamian Council's deposition to the newspapers. New Orleans plantation owners raged that the British had, in their eyes, robbed them and their compatriots of U.S. property. Now they waited with anticipation for what would become of the mutineers. Secretary of State Daniel Webster demanded Nassau's government return the men to the United States on charges of mutiny and murder. He said the Bahamian government had no right to interfere with an American ship, citizens, or cargo. It would have been a death sentence for Washington and the others. Remember, in the States, enslaved people weren't allowed to speak in their own defense, to hire counsel, or to even be questioned. This naturally limited their ability to tell their side of the story. Nassau, though, didn't have the same laws in place. Anyone standing trial was allowed to speak on their behalf, question accusers or witnesses, and sign depositions. Before the trial, which was scheduled for April, though, two of the collaborators died, one from wounds sustained during the battle and the other from natural causes. On April 16th of 1842, the Nassau court debated the case of the remaining 17 mutineers. After some discussion about jurisdiction and the legal location of the events, Washington and the others were informed of the court's decision. It has pleased God, the Chief Justice told them, to set you free from the bonds of slavery, 
May you hereafter lead lives of good and faithful subjects of Her Majesty's government. The men were free and could choose what to do with their lives. All 17 stayed in Nassau. The captives on the Creole hadn't been the first the Bahamian government had freed from American ships. Four slaving brigs had found themselves shipwrecked in their territory. However, the Creole contained the largest number of trafficked people, and its crew's mutiny had been the most successful uprising among enslaved people in American history. Back in the States, insurance companies initially refused to pay the claims that Louisiana slave owners filed for lost property. Several lawsuits emerged against the companies over financial losses stemming from the revolt. The majority of those cases were consolidated, much like class-action lawsuits of today. Eventually, that case went before the Louisiana Supreme Court. The two countries involved ultimately reached an agreement in 1842. The British repaid the losses the following year, totaling roughly $100,000. And what happened to Washington? His wife, Susan, had stayed on the island, awaiting her husband's fate. While no one really knows what became of them afterward, some believe the couple was finally able to live the free life they had always dreamed of. It might not have played out how they envisioned it back in Virginia, but ultimately, their plan worked. He was born on the eastern shore along the Chesapeake Bay. There were rumors that his father was the plantation owner. As you might imagine, this didn't go over well with the plantation owner's wife. So Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey was sent to another plantation 12 miles away to live with his maternal grandparents. Bailey's mother was allowed to visit, but only on rare occasions. She managed to see her son just a handful of times before her death when he was seven years old. After that, his life took another turn when his owner sold him to the Y House Plantation. Then he was sold again to the Auld family, who taught him to read and write, unusual for most enslaved people. This didn't stop him from trying to escape, though. Considered too defiant, the Alds sold him yet again. Bailey's continued efforts to free himself caused him to be sold or even given away several times more. When he turned 21 in 1838, he ran again, hiding away on a northbound train heading to New York City. This time, he was successful and found his way to a safe house. Soon afterward, Anna, a woman he'd known while he was enslaved, followed his route, and the two married. Bailey and his new wife moved to New Bedford, Massachusetts where he assisted in the abolitionist movement prominent in the area. He changed his name on the suggestion of a friend who'd read a novel by Sir Walter Scott. He became a preacher and a writer, and used his new professions to shed light on human injustices. He believed that all people, no matter their race, color, or sex, were equal. And as an avid reader, he came across the story of Madison Washington, during a speech in Cork, Ireland in 1845, he praised Washington for his passion for freedom. His words, writings, and speeches on slavery caught the attention of the Rochester Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society. They planned on publishing a short story collection entitled Autographs for Freedom and asked if he would consider writing a piece for it. 
The Adventures of Madison Washington would be his only fictional work, although he'd go on to write other biographical narratives. The novella was published in 1852, ten years after Washington had won his freedom. The story, although mostly true, had an almost play-like quality to it, opening with the scene that Washington might have had with the Canadian farmer. Eventually, the work found its way to the newspapers as a three-part serial, coming out shortly after Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. The novella was met with acclaim, and people clamored for more. They'd have to wait, though, as the preacher continued his work for equality and freedom for a few more years. Later, during the Civil War, he fought for black men's rights to serve in combat. And after the war ended, he wrote his autobiography, which was published just three years before his death. You've heard of it. The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. He started young. By the age of just 13, William was being hired out, a common experience for enslaved black people as of 1827. And most of William's work was aboard steamboats on the Missouri River. His owner was a St. Louis physician named Dr. John Young, who also owned the boy's mother, Elizabeth. William had six brothers and sisters, but his father had been white, and he had a lighter skin color than his siblings. His father was the cousin of Dr. Young. This cousin was a planter on a nearby plantation. The man acknowledged William as his son and asked Young to never sell him. In 1832, William and his mother tried to escape, only to be caught and returned to Dr. Young. So, seeing the pair as too much trouble, and believing he no longer needed their services, Dr. Young sold them. But while Elizabeth was purchased by a slave trader working out of New Orleans, William's destination ended up being fairly local. Not long after, he was sold again, this time to a riverboat captain. But on January 1st of 1834, he made a break for freedom while the boat was docked in Cincinnati, Ohio. A short while later, he found assistance through a Quaker man by the name of Wells Brown. Brown gave him clothes, money, and food, and also eventually taught him to read and write. Ever thankful for the Quaker's kindness, William added the man's name to his own. And after moving on to make a life for himself, he stuck with his writing, almost as though trying to make up for all the years he hadn't been able to. Later, William found work on a steamboat on Lake Erie. But when he wasn't working, he helped enslaved people as a member of the Underground Railroad. By 1842, he'd helped 69 people reach Canada. And that was also how he met Elizabeth Schooner. And the two soon married and started a family. Over time, William became an avid abolitionist and prolific writer, publishing work on causes such as abolition, temperance, women's suffrage, and prison reform. But part of his work involved giving speeches, which meant a lot of travel. All this time away took a toll on his marriage, and by 1847, it fell to pieces. In the aftermath, he gained custody of their two daughters, and the three moved to Boston, where he continued to write. His first short story sold 10,000 copies within just a couple of years, becoming almost as popular as those written by Frederick Douglass. 
1849, William and his daughters were living in England. He spent most of his time lecturing and writing, and remained quite prolific during his time there. His most famous, or perhaps most infamous work, was the novel Clotel, which was something of a scandal. The story centered around two fictional daughters born to Thomas Jefferson and a fictional woman he enslaved. It was inspired by the former president's real-life relationship with Sally Hemings, whom he owned. A Clotel is considered the first full-length novel published by an African-American, finding success in Britain before being printed in America. In 1850, the Fugitive Slave Law passed in the United States, making it unsafe for William to return. In 1853, a British couple paid for his freedom, ensuring that whenever he did return to the States, he would be safe. The couple had also purchased freedom for another man a few years earlier, Frederick Douglass. William returned to the States in 1854, and returned also to the tour circuit. He finally found love again in 1860 at the age of 44, marrying 22-year-old Anna Elizabeth Gray. The couple settled into a comfortable life and welcomed two children of their own. Sadly, cholera would take the life of their son just a few years later, and their daughter passed away due to typhoid fever. To ease the pain from the losses, William found time to help the Union recruit men for enlistment during the Civil War. And while the conflict raged, he published another book on the history of black soldiers and their fight to help the Union against the Confederacy. Like Frederick Douglass, he also wrote about Madison Washington, though his version was more of a historic biography. Over the years, William Brown wrote in multiple genres, anything from travel articles to fiction to biographies to a play. And it's clear from the life he lived that Brown, just like Douglass and Washington before him, understood a powerful thing about freedom. It gave a person the chance to make their own stories heard. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.